3: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey.
0: And I'm Robert Diamant.
3: And this is Talk Art.
0: Welcome to Talk Art.
3: How are you today, Rob?
0: Today, Russell, I am feeling sunny like a sunflower. Ah, oh. Yeah. Which is very me, isn't it? Whereas you're yeah. more of a warflower, Russell Toby. <laughs> yeah,
3: I'm, I'm um, a warflower for sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: you need to like stop being such a warflower, my love. <laughs> um, I've, I've been thinking a lot um, about sunflowers the last few weeks because they're my favourite flower. I have them always at home throughout the summer, and I also love them when they're dried. And I love paintings of them, which is very handy because today's guest has dedicated a large part of his career to this very subject. But I've also been thinking a lot about family because the last 24 hours, my life has changed. I've become a cat parent or a cat (laughs) porrant as uh, Shirley Manson told me which is really lols <laughs> and yeah I've got two kittens window and doorway who now live with me in my house in Margate and it's been a bit of a shock to the system but it got me thinking about family and for me I do obviously have my mum and I have lots of cousins and family but um, when you're queer I think queer family is a really important thing and this weekend in Margate we had Margate Pride and it really got me thinking about how special the community is here um, in London as well I have bonded so much with different queer people male female non-binary trans like all kinds of different people and they really do like fill my heart with joy and I feel so grateful to have it and also recently when we did our interview at Queer Circle where they had Michaela Yearwood Dan's show we were talking about the HIV pandemic and the way that so many people were lost and that we as a future generation don't have a connection directly to a lot of that generation because um, so many people passed away tragically. And there's always been this sense of some kind of missing generation. And there are obviously many people who who survived that time and and are still here, um, such as today 's guest and I feel incredibly honored and grateful to be able to meet people from that time and uh reflect and also remember the the people that 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 were lost during those times and even the plays that you 've been involved in like Angels in America and inheritance and you know different art forms that have you know kept these people alive in a way like the memory of them alive it's so important and i think art can do that too so we would like to welcome to talk art
3: jimmy, jimmy right hey jimmy hi, thank jimmy. you thank you hello hi where are you in the world jimmy i'm in lord manhattan
2: very near the new museum on a little tiny alley called freeman alley it used to be hidden new york now it's uh Become a destination
3: yeah you're, you're just off the Bowery aren't you?
2: Yes, I moved to a loft on the Bowery in about 1976. So my entire time
3: living quarters in Manhattan have been on the Bowery. So you moved to that this loft in 1976 and you were born and raised we can hear it in your accent a bit in Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, Yes. This was your kind of entrance into the world. Was that part of the world? What What was that like in 1944? You were born, right? What was that like? Was there like culture there as a kid that you could immerse yourself in?
2: My family farm is 12 miles from the birthplace of the Everly Brothers. Oh wow! Okay. And we are a direct line straight up from Graceland. Uh, Memphis, Tennessee, so you drive the you drive straight up Tennessee from Memphis to Western Tennessee, Western Kentucky, and of course, um, this was the heyday of radio, so country music, and my mother had a cousin that lived in Nashville, so I grew up hearing the grand old Opry. Music was not a um, major cultural element in my family life. But radio was. Radio was on uh, from the time I got up till supper time. Uh, and then, of course, uh, television. When we got a television in the 50s, supper time, which would be six or so in the evening, uh, television became a part of our life. But throughout the day in my mother's house, uh, the radio was on. And it was local local radio, and they played exclusively um, country music. <laughs> oh, wow. is, is that something you still appreciate now? <laughs> yes, though it's not, uh, it's not a major part of my life. Now, David Bowie, for instance, in the early <laughs> 70s when I moved to New York, did become a major um, sort of stepstone in my life with glam rock uh, in fact, I saw Bowie's first American concert tour, and I was on faculty in Southern Illinois University, and I drove with friends to St. Louis and, wow. and Iggy Pop and a whole bunch of other other people like that, T-Rex. Um, uh, so glam rock very early on became um, uh, very important to me. And then when I moved to New York in 1974 was when I discovered um, Club 82, which was a kind of after-hours hangout for hipsters, glam rock crowd. It was a leftover, uh, what was known in the States as a pony bar. It had been a 50s, late 40s, early 50s, mafia-owned, bar with a floor show of all uh, cross-dressers. So in the 70s, the club was run by a group of, uh, I'm sure all my terms are wrong, individuals who uh, dressed as men and were middle-aged and older. Uh, so it was a, a totally unique space in all of Manhattan. And it was just a few blocks from
3: CBGB's, which was a very different world. So you grew up in quite a religious background, but I've read that at the age of eight, you declared to your family that you're going to be an artist and you'd walk around pretending to paint in the air. And this was in relation (laughs) to nobody in your family knowing what art was really. How, How was the reaction to it then? And how did you know at that age, looking back, you were that certain that this was a career that you wanted to go on?
2: I grew up in a family where um, this, well, like I say, it's a heyday of radio. It's the heyday of local newspapers. So there were weekly six newspapers in the house, um, including um, the Courier Journal from, from uh, Louisville. Uh, I think it was called the Commercial Appeal from... Memphis so those were the big city newspapers and we received Life magazine every week Mm -hmm. so as you know the history of life it's an incredible photography reportage Um, so at eight I had already seen how I was very familiar with Picasso I was very familiar with Matisse Uh, I was introduced to Jackson Pollock um I knew, well, especially the South of France, I knew there was a different way to live, and that one could succeed at that life and one could be, it looked like an immensely happy life, uh, and very fulfilling. So I knew there was some other life than being on a farm and um, in a sense, going to church three times a week <laughs> and living a very Calvinist self-disciplined life uh, that one could be quite free, quite happy, incredibly creative. And uh, I mean, as an adult, I would say, and and a very productive member of society. So that was my hint that there was a life beyond beyond the front yard of a of a Kentucky farm.
0: And I heard you went one summer to stay with your auntie and uncle and it was actually your auntie that paid for you to have art classes and lessons. So by then you'd obviously told all of your family that you were an artist and you were very keen to pursue this.
2: Well and I went to a very small um, public school and there was no art program. I was what you would call the class drawer. Uh, if something needed to be drawn, I was the one that drew it. Uh, and I was never good at copying. There were other folks in the class that could copy a photograph. I was never, never, never very good at that. I made everything up. So drawing was always a part of my
3: um, daily activity. So you then found yourself um, studying in Chicago in the 60s at the Chicago Art Institute and you moved with the artists that were becoming the Chicago Imagists, which is a whole movement that so much of art today references and connects to and within art history, they're incredibly important. Can you talk about that time and, and who exactly the Chicago Imagists were and why they're so important? At the
2: Art Institute, you know, I arrived from, uh, arrived from Kentucky not knowing anyone, not knowing anything about art school, really. Um, and it took it took a year or two of taking classes before I could determine who really were the interesting instructors, because the classrooms, the doors were always open. And uh, students would stand in doorways and watch painting classes. Uh, between classes, you visited all the classrooms, you visited all the studios to see what other other students were painting. And in doing that, you, uh, I remember walking into uh, Ray Yoshida's class and looking at a, um, a particular painting, and from behind me, Ray Yoshida said, right, you should really find that painting interesting. And of course, I jumped out of my skin. Uh, number one, how did Ray Yoshida even know who who I was, know my name? And it indicated uh, he also had been watching me paint or seeing what I was painting. And so the very next semester, I, uh, took Ray Yoshida for painting. And, uh, in, in the two years that I painted with Ray, um, I met Roger Brown. Um, well, actually I introduced Roger to Ray Yoshida. Roger was from Alabama. He came from the same fundamentalist Christian background as I. And so we had that in common, uh, he also was a gay man um and he was living with this incredibly handsome marine <laughs> and so i suddenly had a role model of someone living living a completely wholesome emotionally wholesome gay life with this incredibly beautiful man and i introduced and really persuaded roger to take ray's class and in just by chance in that classroom i met christina ramberg mm. uh, phil hansen arrived one day a transfer from the university of chicago and uh, then another student who was one of my closest friends eleanor Dooby, and those painters became the images group uh, mm. but we all started off in ray's class And I was the rebellious one. Um, I never did a single exercise that Ray recommended to everyone else. Uh, Mm. (laughs) I sort of uh, resisted everything he told me while absolutely absorbing it um, uh, because um, I – I had a kind of self-confidence in my own voice and he respected that and he worked very hard to offer what he could that would help me develop that voice. So he never imposed um he never imposed anything on me.
3: But would you say that you were part of the imagists then if you were moving with them and they were your friends would you So that you were one of those.
2: No. (laughs) I never showed with them. I was with them socially all the time, but my work, their work was distinctive and fit together as a group, and mine was sort of odd man out, and that never bothered any of us. Um, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't felt I had to change anything in order to, to be a part of the group. It's interesting now as an older artist to look back on how important, well, we all know how important friends and peers are, but in just in terms of professionalism, belonging to a group uh, strengthens your own work in a sense. Uh, it, it establishes rapport with, with a very small group of trusted Artists, uh, and uh, somehow I, I trusted them explicitly. But now, as an as an older adult, I'd say I was too queer. I was too queer, <laughs> I was too queer was. To totally. I was too queer to totally fit into. Even though there were many members of the group who were gay, I just felt my own difference, and um, stuck to it.
0: Um, where do you think that sense of confidence and self and kind of uh, self-focus, like, like, you know, you, you knew exactly that you wanted to do it your way, in a sense. And I heard that when your auntie had sent you to that, you know, initial kind of art school, um, you know, art, sorry, art classes, you, you began to sort of paint in a very gestural way, which then you, you sort of kept up throughout your, your future paintings as a kind of style, in a sense, like you already had that very early
2: on. You know, serendipity plays a huge part in our lives. So it turned out it was a former student of a well-known Art Students League instructor named Nicolaides, who had written a book called The Natural Way to Draw. And so um, I've forgotten how old, old I was, 12, 13 years old. Uh, it was a summer of learning uh, starting with gestural drawing, uh, learning to draw from observation, but it was a very loose, expressive uh, form. You start loose, and from that, you can become very detailed and very tight, but the whole point was you start very freely, and uh, essentially, you're just learning to coordinate the hand and the eye. And so when I arrived at the Art Institute uh As this was the 60s, the curriculum still required many hours of um, figure drawing classes, Uh, but I walked in already having those skills. And so then again, by chance, encountering Ray Yoshida, the whole challenge for me became to um, how does one use What are uh, mechanical skills uh, to give meaning to form? And one of Ray's um, standard questions as he would be looking at something you were working on, he would isolate a shape or he would look at the entire canvas and pose the question, could this be, could this become and it was always where what is what is what have you visualized that can be pushed and develop to to a more complete uh meaning or to something that reveals the meaning to you and um, much of this is based i think on surrealism uh, allowing forms to take on something other than their literal meaning. Um, right, right. So, so I was never interested in realism in that sense, and that's where, for instance, my friend Roger Brown took that and stylized it because Ray was very interested in comic cult, uh, comic book uh, drawing, and comic book culture. And uh, for Roger Brown, it became a whole uh, whole vocabulary of um, signs and symbols. Um, So what was your work like then? uh, It was very loose. And again, it was based upon uh, real life experiences. So um, very similar to... um, I was working primarily in ink on paper, and I liked that there's no going back um, your errors are never really errors; they just become part of the formal uh attributes of what you're seeing visually and so for instance um. 1967, 68, somewhere along in there, I was taken to a private club, and that was the first gay bar I was ever in. And uh, then the next day, I did drawings of that experience. Um, so they were very loose, expressive, uh, expressionistic uh, records of both my inner life and my um, actual uh, reality. Um, but
3: they were always figurative, right? So you they were always the figurative. Kind of... They were always right. figurative
2: and they always had a sense of narration to them. Um, and, you know, this is our early 60s. Foreign films like Fellini, and, uh, film directors like Fellini and Antonioni were very important to me and very exciting discoveries. Um, I experienced, uh, I experimented with serial imagery uh, where on one sheet of paper there would be, again, like a comic book or like a film storyboard, there would be a sequence of scenes in a row uh, establishing a kind of not literal narrative, but
3: would hint at some kind of narrative. Um, And what was the reaction to that? work you were making because we're in a different time now when it comes to queer art we've seen a massive movement shift in the last like really really recently in the last five years but making work in the 60s and 70s that was you know figurative and gay what was your reaction because you said earlier that you know your work was too gay for the chicago imagists but this feels like a comic book theme you're talking about what was the reaction the art world was
2: a very different place Chicago was was labeled the second city. Uh, so it was a very small art scene and very insular. And I was a student, so I was not, it wasn't till um, 1967, 68, that I started showing with a legitimate um, commercial art gallery. So I was mm-hmm. isolated, in a sense. It was a very sheltered world. And within that sheltered world, um, I had my friends uh, who were very always a hundred percent supportive. And I had um, a small group of art institute um, professors who championed me in, but it was always a student professorial relationship. Um, so there was never any conflict. Um, I was aware then that um, um, Chicago was a very homophobic city. And in fact, um, I think it was 1966, one of my friends was, uh, was uh, brutally murdered in a homophobic incident. Uh, that was, um, well uh that was life-changing and traumatic and uh made me very aware of how um how dangerous a world we gay people do live in um and that made me very restless in a sense um i wasn't afraid of chicago but just like the farm in kentucky It became a place I wanted to leave, uh, though I didn't have in mind where I was
3: going to go. But you received a, a travel fellowship in 1967, which meant that you were able to leave Chicago, right? You went to Iran, Afghanistan, Turkey, Pakistan, Nepal, all these places, India, and this must have changed everything well and i
2: started out in london uh on a bus ah. <laughs> on a bus across europe that um i bought a ticket literally from london to calcutta um uh there were two bus lines that provided this and uh, one had no schedule it had a departure date and an arrival date and it looked like the fun bus. The second bus was the one I took because it had a schedule. And um, it had a driver and a courier. And uh, on this, uh, the passengers, half the passengers were my age group and the other half were middle-aged, either they lived and worked in London, and they were returning home to New Zealand or Australia, or they were from New Zealand and Australia, and this was their trip back home from visiting relatives in London. So it was an odd, wonderful mix of uh, people with who were traveling for different reasons. Um, I bonded with a young uh German woman who lived in Montreal, and she had um, been a travel agent for two years, so um, culturally, we were interested in the same things, so we ended up being kind of uh, travel mates, Uh, and once we got to Calcutta, we took off on our own and um, spent
3: several months traveling all over India together. Um, wow. Somebody said we, that you um, wouldn't survive because you had long hair at the time and looked like a fourteen-year-old girl. Well, <laughs> did you feel Did you feel vulnerable traveling the world on this fellowship, or was this a time where you were able to kind of feel some security and safety doing that?
2: I would say the only place I felt vulnerable was probably Afghanistan, and I was explicitly warned not to go to the tea houses at night alone um we were constantly meeting in uh, well from iran afghanistan pakistan we were constantly meeting this is when you know people would take off from london in a range rover and have a a kit of spare parts and you would pass them along a dirt road in the middle of afghanistan and they're they're changing they're changing engine parts or something, and then you would see them too late two days later in a hotel uh, i mean it it was a whole route of European Western travelers going to India uh, and and coming back and Along that route, we were constantly hearing stories of young women disappearing, and of course, everyone felt they ended up in you know, where it was sex trafficking. They ended up in Arab uh, countries or never left the country where they were kidnapped. But kidnappings and robberies were something that happened, were common stance, especially in Afghanistan, on these vast stretches of road where there were only, there were commercial truck traffic. Um, so so there was a sense of danger. Um but but um the world politically it was such a very different world that um i never i never was afraid i don't think and part of that was i was i was with group and i was with people that were experienced travelers and mm-hmm. i also knew uh how to clean myself up and be able to be uh, to go through different levels of society without conflict. Um, uh, which I think, you know, that's another talent, uh, gay people develop, um, how to, how to adjust to social situations where you can, you can perform. Yes. Perform In some ways. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, in order to to be safe as well. You know, you you mentioned that people had said to you about the tea rooms and not going alone at night, and there was a drawing I wanted to ask you about randomly called Tea Room from 75. Um, Is that a related tea room or is that a different situation? Like, What what, what are the tea rooms?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, in in Paris in the 70s, the public toilets were called chapels. Uh, Oh, right. In New York, the public toilets were called tea rooms. So it's a very different reference,
3: and literally in the in, in the UK, they're cottages in the Middle aren't
2: they? East, uh, right? You were saying there, is, yeah. Uh, so that was a reference to this sort of underground gay culture, which I was fascinated with in Chicago, in New York, because it was multicultural and it was uh, all social levels. So you would see a man in a suit that looked like he was from Wall Street engaged with a man of color who looked like he was a um, transit authority track worker. <laughs> uh, so you would see a kind of in social sexual engagement that did not exist in any other gay space that I ever encountered other than perhaps in gay saunas where everyone's wearing a towel um, and there is no other um, signal as to what one's income is or education level is, et cetera. Um, So I found that very interesting mix and that became the whole subject of the tea room drawings. And, you know, one of the trips this beloved aunt gave me was when I graduated from high school she and I went to Chicago together and uh, the main idea was to visit the museum the Art Institute of Chicago and as luck would have it the major contemporary show was a du Bouffet show so I walked out just totally enthusiastic with Dubuffet and uh, so very early on was aware of Art Brute and of Dubuffet's uh, drawings of men pissing um, uh, you know adopting the the crudest forms of symbols for the figure uh, as a uh, fine art um, form so that was totally compatible with attitudes about art in Chicago preceding the Imagist group and and the Harry Who was the monster school. Chicago was also home to a lot of very um, um serious art collectors of surrealism and a lot of early supporters of Dubuffet's art brute. Um, so I was, again, just serendipity. I was in a school and I was in a city that was very receptive to things that I was already um, somehow felt a kinship to.
3: Mm-hmm. So this, this the whole subject, you're talking about the tea rooms, but there's a whole body of work which feels like it's been overlooked for a long time until um, David Fearman, who is your gallery in the Lower East Side in New York, uh, showed the work kind of brought it back out and showed it all into a gallery uh, situation but these these drawings are all inspired by your experiences uh in new york predominantly uh, in the 70s in a post stonewall uh pre-aids kind of golden period and it, it it crosses everything from cruising to public sex to club socializing to bathhouses, and these male queer um environments you've kind of become a go-to as like a a moment of history and a historical document of that time so these drawings you were doing at the time that have now become something that everybody relates to you what what was that like at that period in history and what was that like being an artist at that time and using your personal and private life experiences and and this this um, kind of zeitgeist moment within queer history as your Um, inspiration for your work
2: well new york in 1974 and the early 70s um was uh, the 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 art scene was small enough that just on a public level you could see every gallery show in a month very easily without wearing yourself out uh one of my best friends um was Bruce Kurtz, who wrote for Arts Magazine. And Bruce um, wrote about uh, video art. He was very interested in new art forms. Um, So I was looking a lot at, you know, Richard Serra. Um, I was Bruce, m- my friend Bruce, was very versed in Robert Smithson's work. So I was looking at work that didn't relate to the kind of art I was making. Very minimal uh, which, work, yeah. Yeah, very minimal and, and very um, intellectual, um, very non-emotional in many aspects. Um, mm-hmm. um, I still like looking at art that has no relationship to my own visually. So when I was having these experiences of, of living in a city where I felt I could survive and where I felt uh, no matter who I was or who I became, there would be some element of acceptance I mean, that's why I moved here. I knew artists moved here. I felt if William Burroughs could live in New York, I could live in New York. So literally no one was interested in these drawings. My friend Bruce, uh, I was very intimate with the steps in his career as an art critic. I understood uh, who he who any art critic writes about, um, helps determine their own reputation as a critic. Um, And what I was making was totally out of bounds for for the kind of work he was interested in. He was always appreciative of this body of work and at the same time amused by it, Um, but literally there was no place to show it. And I did take the portfolio around as these drawings were being made. Um, um, gay collectors, it was as if I had brought in dirty underwear. Um, you, you know, I understood at the time this work was not stylized or fetishized in the way that, a Tama Finland drawing was. I wasn't idealizing the male form. I wasn't idealizing something about gay culture or a gay fetish. Um, it's sort of like m- my friendships I had in the leather community. I never I never had for myself, a fetish for gay leather, for leather, period. But I understood what a fetish was. Um, mm-hmm. um, so in a sense, uh, these drawings, the all of these experiences within queer culture and within art culture were so vibrant and um, alive for me. That the impulse to record them as drawings was, was, uh, you know, I couldn't suppress that. Uh, it was almost
3: obsessive, right?
2: Yes, it was like having, you know, having gone to a particularly visual uh, club, uh, and the only thing you can historically that I could associate it. With would be Weimar, Germany. I mean, that was my only historic reference, but I knew it was different, uh, and it was uh, it was it was just totally natural for me to sit down the next day, or two days, or a week later, and pull back all those impressions
3: and create a, create a drawing, a composition. Um, So you'd never you'd never take your sketchbooks into these experiences with you. These would all be done from memory. Of course. Right.
2: You know, I I wasn't. um, I wasn't there as a voyeur and I wasn't there as a reporter. I was there as a participant in in this queer community and. In mm-hmm. the moment, and it's it's like you're you're uh, immersed in the experience, and after all, that immersion um, is what um, feeds my art. In the same sense that uh, it it the visual immersion fed an impressionist artist.
3: Got it was it was it quite upsetting at the time when you committed yourself so fully to this subject that there wasn't that support? And how did you financially support yourself living in New York at the time and your art? Well, again, 70s uh,
2: economy was uh, very different from current economy. One could pay the rent. One could eat out a couple of times a month um, one could go to a concert all on uh, income earned from freelance jobs or from part-time jobs or mm-hmm. one could make a really good living simply waiting tables. so I was uh, though I had an mFA and was qualified to teach in you know college level um, uh art departments. Um, I was determined to not return to the academic world. I was determined mm. to be a citizen participant of New York City, and so um, the second week uh, I was in the second week I was in New York. My neighbor, uh, who I had known. Uh, in university in Illinois, um, was a production manager in feature film and commercial work, uh, and he knocked on my door and said, "I have a job for you," and I was hired on a low budget non union feature film to do props and costumes, and I sort of looked at him and said, "You know, I don't have a." clue what you're talking about i've never worked on a film before and he's just sort of looked at me and he says oh i trust you'll figure it out uh and so that's how i ended up that was my first big job in the film world in new york was the making of the film saturday night at the Baz, um which had maybe three three um um crew members that were union and everyone else was non-union and uh literally um it was the kind of situation where the scene was being written by the writer as we were filming the scene Um, so one never knew what was going to happen one had to constantly improvise
3: that still happens now that's the way (laughs) that's (laughs) the way it seems everything is today still
0: So
1: to recap, we're cutting the
0: price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at (laughs) mintmobile.com.
3: So so talking about these, these drawings. So at the time there wasn't support, but now in you know the last few years, there's been incredible support and people absolutely adore these sex club drawings and the bathhouse drawings. Why do you think we are in a place now as compared to then where these drawings are being collected? I mean, you've been acquired by the Met and the Whitney, MoMA, the Hammer Museum. You're in the best collections in the world with this work. Why do you think that people are so obsessed with these drawings now? Well,
2: Number one, it's a world that's gone. It's a, it's a, a kind of, um, eyewitness report of a world that's totally gone, totally lost. Um, anyone of my generation or, you know, the next, uh, 10 years younger than me, um, can recite the names of wonderful, Uh, individuals and incredible artists that were lost to to AIDS. Uh, We also now are so aware of of the political turmoil and a return of hostility to gay culture and gay people. Um, So again, this was almost like a moment of freedom that evaporated uh, it's also a moment of freedom before um, uh, the gay political focus became more mainstream, more middle class, focused on the gay family uh, rather than the gay individual. So it, I think the interest in part is, number one, I think... Uh, I think the drawings are very alive. They're not static. Um, So, so they really do um, offer you a window into a moment that will, uh, I would say, will never happen again.
3: Yeah, sadly. I mean, you, your your documents are like of the Anvil Club, which is in the was in the meatpacking district in New York, which is now where like the Apple Store is in Soho House. And you can't really imagine this, these kind of experiences, these clubs existing in those sort of areas anymore. But you were mentioning your friend Bruce Kurtz earlier on, and uh, he called you the gay Toulouse-Lautrec, which I feel like really, really sums up <laughs> like exactly <laughs> Uh, what, what you were doing. But um, moving on from these drawings, for the last uh, 20 years, you've worked solely with the image of uh, the sunflower. And this is a work that Rob, Rob came to your work through that direction. I came to your work through the uh, drawings from the 70s direction. So people coming to your work from different angles. What is it? Why did you change to such a kind of... Uh, complete opposite view of like the still life, I guess, and, and the historical still life of the sunflower thing of Van Gogh from like a Toulouse-Lautrec figurative world. What caused that shift?
2: Well, in, um, I met my, uh, partner Ken in a bathhouse in, um, uh, about 1976. Um, basically he came home with me and never left um and uh in 1988 he was diagnosed with ks uh 1988 uh is early in the aids epidemic it was when um there was a um azt protocol that was being um experimented with at NYU and otherwise um, there were no treatments. If you took an HIV test in a non-confidential situation and your test results were positive and reported to your insurance company, if you had medical insurance, your insurance would be canceled. Um, So... um, we had been suspicious for several years about Ken's health and uh with the confirmation of KS it meant uh he was very quickly spiraling into full blown AIDS and overnight our worlds changed and everything became devoted to his health care. To treatment plans. And then in three years, it was just a rapid decline of his physical health. And so I became overnight a full time caretaker.
3: You were talking about 1988 when your partner was diagnosed, and it was a period when there were still experimental medications being tried out. And you had an experience where you guys traveled to Long Island and someone turned up there out of the blue.
2: Oh, Medical quackery is really frightening to encounter. And now, of course, we're experiencing political quackery that has just as lethal results. Um, So there was a lot in the midst of science and dependence upon science. There was a whole other world of medical quackery taking advantage of Anyone with AIDS or anyone with a critical illness like cancer, and so the theory was if you induced a high fever, uh, the fever high enough, the fever would kill the HIV virus and um, i've I've forgotten all the details, but this fake practitioner convinced a sincere and legitimate doctor to host him in his personal clinic for an afternoon and he would administer this treatment. And um, so Ken and I took the train to Long Island to uh, this doctor's home And when we arrived, the lawn was crowded with gay men from the city. And they were waiting for the doors to open. And, uh, you know, like 30 people waiting outside. And so we were at the back of the crowd on the lawn and uh, meeting people, talking, and a large black limousine pulled up beside me and of course i turned because this big car has arrived Um, the door opens the passenger door opens and a cane comes out with a silver tip a uh, velvet shoe with an embroidered insignia on it steps out and it's robert maplethorpe with with um one of his best friends a photographer and his other best friend his personal lawyer so i i'm just immediately struck how uh here is someone that can afford the very best that medical science has to offer and he is in the same situation as everyone standing here on this lawn um there is no cure there's no answer and if anyone op- uh, offers hope uh, one turns to that that light of hope. It, unfortunately, many of those uh, lights were, were fake, were hoaxes, were mm-hmm. exploitive moments. Um, so it just shows the vulnerability of the moment and the sense, even though there was community, queer community, the sense of isolation within the greater community was immense. And you can imagine what it would be for uh, for other minority people or for people with real economic, easily stressed situations. Uh, it was it was terrifying, literally all of my closest friends were with the exception of maybe uh, one or two were diagnosed with in a very short period of time i uh i didn't know i really didn't know how i would survive without without my partner And I really didn't know how I would survive without my friends. It was immensely traumatic. And I felt I had to find a way where I could hold on to some part of me. And I knew that was in the studio. And uh, I didn't know how I could maintain a practice when I had other, so many other responsibilities that required my focus and my time. And so my reasoning was very simple. I had never painted a still life, probably in my life, except maybe once or twice as a teenager. Uh, it had never interested me. But what I understood was, oh, you put these things on a tabletop, and they don't move, and you can walk away from them and come back whenever, and they haven't moved. Uh, maybe they have a little dust on them. And I was a big fan of Mirandi's work, so I knew still life could be meaningful. Um, so that was my plan. Oh, I'll just paint still life's Um It's there waiting for me. It doesn't matter whether I paint in a week or two months or three months. It's just sitting there. I don't have to think about it. I just walk in and paint what I see. Um, The magic in that, of course, is once you start looking and painting, um, there are other forces that come into play. And by chance – I had brought home a large sunflower head that was sold. um, It still had the petals of the bloom on it, but it was sold to be a seed, um, a sunflower for seed. Um, And I put it on the tabletop. I made, uh, it had been so long since I had drawn from observation I made a fake camera obscura, which simply consisted of a proscenium, like a box with a window cut out, and the sunflower sat in the box as if it were on a stage. And I made a grid. Um, My partner, Ken, loved um, deep sea fishing. And so there was very thick, translucent uh, plastic fishing line. And I had a hot glue gun and I created a grid across the proscenium and um, pretended that was going to uh, line up every time I went to paint and draw from observation that all this would line up. Of course it didn't work Mm -hmm. in any way other than the magic of this object um, helped me focus Um, and Uh, literally I did the, um, I think the first painting was the back of the sunflower. And then the second painting was the front of the sunflower after it had dried completely to seed. And both of these paintings were six by six feet. So I was doing a still life, which I knew in itself was something of a of a form that's not truly reflective of my interests. Uh, So the scale blew it totally out of proportions into something with a kind of different formal uh, potential for me. But the main thing was I didn't have to think about it. It was simply action. And that action took place um, over a period of about three to four years. I would, I would walk in and sort of automatically pick up where I had left off in constructing these big objects on a very heavily textured canvas. Um, and, you know, it didn't matter how long it took. It didn't matter if they were ever finished. Uh, It didn't matter if anyone ever saw them. It was just a place for... The studio was a place for me to go to sort of retreat into myself in what was three years of intense um, pain.
0: Mm. And I can imagine having the one subject matter... Is freeing, isn't it? Because you don't have to, you know, it's kind of, you know what you're going to start painting as you begin. So it's a, it reminds me slightly of Stanley Whitney because Stanley, I remember going to his studio about a decade ago and, and thinking about, the decades of his paintings and how even though it's a grid each one is really exploring color and his mood yes. and music and yes. um, line and all of these things and it becomes so much more than just the simple idea of the grid you know yes. and when with your work i see the similar thing because um your interest in color and and shape and like uh, blooms that are alive or blooms that are like falling apart or you know there's this constant as as you look Motion. across yeah, and decades of, of of these sunflowers. It's like I don't know. It just becomes such a bigger comment on humanity and life and loss and all of these things. But particularly, color is, and you can see that in the in the uh, more kind of gay themed works, like the the figurative works. That kind of wash of color was already present. So has that always been a driving force for you?
2: Well, uh, curiously enough, one of the most important academic classes I ever had was part of the foundation requirements at the Art Institute of Chicago and it was Albers' interaction of color and and everyone trash talked this class because it was required and all you were doing (laughs) were, were cutting out squares of color and placing them on each other um, and at the time I was very fortunate in that I studied the instructor for that class was an eccentric woman who was an, uh, an expressionist painter. So I already had, had yet another art instructor who was sympathetic to me. Mm. Uh, but it was the exercise, the revelation that color is irrelevant it only comes alive when placed to a second color or a third color and that color is arbitrary and that you can manipulate color and you can manipulate uh, its visibility and its role on the surface in the painting. You can, you can manipulate its emotional content uh, and it's not bound by form. Um, So, uh, it, it was only when I started doing, um, at some point in the, about two years after Ken passed, I started doing, um, pastels, um, and, uh, I think that was when my sense of color really became much freer um, mm. and more expressive uh, and more, in a sense, improvised because the substance of the form was the flower itself and the co- local color became, it wasn't, it wasn't dependent upon observation. It could be totally internalized.
3: Mm-hmm. And you would turn the canvases around, right? It's like you would switch oh, the.
2: I I I'm, I'm constantly looking for the gravity of the piece, and it's interesting. We just reshot uh, about fifteen pieces that are about ten or twelve years old, and um, on one of them, I totally changed the orientation. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like, oh my god, this is how this painting is meant to be looked at um and i've been looking at it in the most awkward way and and i you know i i'm totally free oh this is the way it's going to go from now on Uh, would you put
3: arrows on the back of the canvas so that the uh, audience whoever collects it or requires it knows uh, uh,
2: on on some canvases there are arrows that have been scratched out (laughs) and it's been reoriented yes so um Right,
3: right right So th- this this subject of the sunflowers, is is this something that you think you're going to continue now for many years to come? Or is this something that could shift into another body of work that we might see?
2: I think I would say it's it could shift very easily. But it is a go-to place. It's a place where I know I can always start. But everything's unpredictable. Uh, I'm not locked into a stylistic path that I'm philosophically and career-wise um, indebted to. Uh, it's sort of like any more that I would be of theology. Um, I'm open... I want to try and remain open to wherever the idea takes me.
3: Got it. Oh. And how, how important are titles? There's a, there's a couple that are especially, say, for Ken. And Ken actually is a name that is shared with your, your friend from your studying days who was uh, murdered. And then also yes. your partner. Yes,
2: yes, uh, the f- uh, They were literally painted for Ken, uh, my partner. And um, it was another artist friend who looked at me one night and said, then you should, then that should be part of the title, Flowers for Kin, because mm-hmm. then, and, and this was so smart, because then the, the meaning travels in the title and it travels with the painting. And that was a kind of of moment of self-realization for me. I, I mean, you know, it's all these years later, it's still it still can be very emotional for me to talk about that period of my life, as mm. I'm sure it is for most of us who survived that time or who were mm. caretakers. But it's also my emotional, makeup is perhaps closer to the surface than for some of my friends, um, who, who, you know, um, um, whose intellectual facilities are closer to the surface. Uh, mine Hmm. all come through, through emotions and, and I sort of grapple with, I don't think emotion is the right, um, you know, um, I don't think that's necessarily the correct definition, but I don't have any other word for it. Uh, Same with expression. I don't quite think that's the right word, but I don't have another for it.
0: I sometimes feel like making a painting is because you're so confronted with yourself while you're doing it like it's just you the hand the paint the the canvas in front of you like it's such an open it's almost like open heart surgery or something it's so raw that in a way it keeps you very emotionally active in a way that if you were working with numbers in a business in a bank or like excel spreadsheets or or something I think your mind it's like it's like it encourages a different part of your mind. And I think there's a reflection that I see it with a lot of artists I know where they then kind of almost, you know, uh, sit with their feelings and their sadness and their loneliness and their joys and their hopes as well. But but it's very much encouraged by the process of making art. And I particularly see it with painters.
2: Well, bound in all of who I am now is my experience with grief. And when... Um, when Ken died, when I went to grief counseling. The only description I could give it was the emotions were so big, they were operatic. Mm. And I felt confined to my body as if a grand opera was being performed on a very small stage Mm -hmm. and everything overlapped. And it was the director's job to keep it from falling into chaos and to pull out of all these elements on this too small a stage, you know, where, where characters are wearing giant opera scaled costumes, um, all of it just verges on out of control chaos. And somehow a great director is able to pull out of that, the art that exists in the music and the libretto. Uh, But it takes Mm. a director and uh, you know, it was the realization that I had to be that director for myself. And um, sometimes, uh, so sometimes a lot of what I make is a mess and I get rid of it. Uh, sometimes I come back to something, a painting that was started five or six years ago and I finish it or I come back to something and I reorient it because suddenly I can see it with the clarity or hear it with a clarity that I couldn't be for. Um, so I, um, I think I look at my art making as never static. Mm. Um, I sort of envy... Uh, I envy art where, um, well, like Ellsworth Kelly. I love Ellsworth Kelly uh, because there's such a clarity and a certainty. And the intellectual and the emotional are coolly balanced. And I would love to be that person, but that's not who I am. Um, So... Uh, I have to live with what I make and how I make it. And um, it may take me five years to see what the painting is.
0: Mm. You know, Russell's question about titles as well. There's so many sort of poetic moments within your titles, like Day for Night was one of my favorites, but um, also your reference to Jericho's painting, The Raft of the Medusa. Yes. Um, That painting, A, is extraordinary, but Mm. I I was really keen to find out um, you know, why you chose to reference that kind of Jericho moment. I mean, there's obviously something quite operatic about that painting and tragic, um, well, of course.
2: Well, and that was what the Raft of Medusa was. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, a horrible tragedy. Uh, uh, I mean, that's amazing painting, but it was about, it was painted in a sense like a newsreel, Um, um. And I sort of feel like my own art is a kind of newsreel of what mm-hmm. I've experienced and what I've seen. And so uh, my painting, of Raft of Medusa, that was done over multiple years, and it seems to be as if the raft of flowers we're on a wave and they are suddenly tipping up to the picture plane tipping up to the viewers uh sight line. but at any moment they're going to flop down at any moment they're going to be be hidden by another wave so it was like it was a moment that's been arrested and frozen but it it's going to change and i hopefully have captured that moment right before it all changes and disappears.
3: You have totally the incredible, this incredible work, everyone listening, you need to go and check this work out. Right Before we get on to our final questions with you, I want to have some uh, quickfire questions with you just to get these details out there, which I've been doing research on you that have come up. Did you ever frequent the continental baths? And did these ever become drawings? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, I thought uh, you had. Okay.
2: We shot there over a week, and that was my first immersive experience in New York City. And I felt like, literally, I was in a Florida roadhouse. Uh, it was so raw, and uh, I couldn't believe uh, Barry Manlow and, and Bette Midler had come out of this incredibly raw place, raw raw social moment, and it was very revealing to me, uh, a very revealing portrait of New York City, but it's located on the Upper West Side, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and all my social activities were the Lower East Side where I ended up living, and it was, just became off my radar.
3: Uh. I just think it's incredible that there was a, a bathhouse that men would go to frequent to have sex. And in the lounge, between nipping back and forth to the jacuzzi, there would be Bette Midler and Barry Manilow performing. Exactly. I just think exactly. it's such a crazy visual. <laughs> kind yes, <of> like, <laughs> exactly. It's magical. Exactly. It's like magical. When you first moved to New York, you lived opposite... Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, is that true when he was a teenager? And what was that like? What was he like? And did you have interactions with him?
2: So I lived on in Borham Hill. And in fact, my landlord and landladies are, to this day, best friends. Uh, the first thing I learned is the social uh, status, that I was a renter. I was not a property owner. So everyone on the block that owned a brownstone socialized on a certain level. And when I socialized with them, in a sense, I was a guest. So uh, my my landlords were good friends with Basquiat's father. Uh, To this day, uh, they still live in, in that house across the street from Uh, the house that the Basquiat family owns. So they knew the family in a way that I did not. I just knew who John Michelle was when I passed him on the street and he was, um, you know, a high school student Uh, in 76. When I moved to the Bowery uh, I would say it was about, about 1978. I Went to an art opening in Soho, and out of the crowd, Jean Michel walked up to me and goes, "Hey, I know you. You're the artist that lived across the street."
0: Whoa! And
2: and from then on, whenever he saw me or I saw him, we said hello. But in his mind, in Jean Michel's mind, I was a, because I was older. I was associated with his father, and his father played an immense, important role in, in his life. So, for instance, Jean Michel's opening show at um, Anina Nosai Gallery, uh, I went early. The gallery was basically empty. I walked in, Jean Michel immediately walked over. He didn't say hello. What he said, was Gerard is coming later, Gerard being the name of his father. So he immediately, you know, always associated me with his father and life on Pacific Street.
3: That's so mm-hmm. nice that he kind of signaled you out and said, "Like, oh, my dad's coming." Like he was connecting with you. It was such, yes. such a yes. That's quite a beautiful memory. Yes. Um, I I've read that you know, when you first moved to New York, people would hook up and public sex would happen everywhere and everybody around it was totally oblivious. But you also talked about how it would happen in the restrooms of certain institutions like the MoMA, for example. Did you ever (laughs) hook up in the MoMA? And was that something that you kind of witnessed?
2: (laughs) Not at the MoMA, but I certainly witnessed it. Uh, every, Every museum, every public, toilet was a hook hookup space uh the subway platforms were hookup public spaces uh uh it it was pretty wild um and we haven't even discussed the piers um you know on the west side the west village yeah. Um, yeah. um i never did well that that's a whole series of drawings i never did
3: um, um
2: but yet, uh,
3: maybe, maybe the if your memory serves you well, it feels like memory is a very important thing to you, Jimmy. <laughs> yes. Maybe yes. now we can see these Christopher Street Piers drawings suddenly arriving <laughs> could in be. the world. That could be. That would be amazing. And a few of these drawings that I've been looking up online have singed edges, like yeah. they've been burnt at the sides. What? Why would we be seeing those out in the world? So
2: when I returned from India in sixty. Seven sixty sixty eight. I've forgotten my dates. Anyway, I returned to Chicago with the idea that I was going to go back to grad school and stay with Ray Yoshida. And I arrived in Chicago and quickly decided I did not want to return to Chicago. And there is a train line that goes straight through my hometown, the Illinois Central. And uh, I took the city of New Orleans, uh, which we go from Chicago directly to New Orleans, and to my hometown. And on the way, I passed through Carbondale, Illinois, where I got off to see one of my old instructors. And I was offered a full scholarship to attend the university in Southern Illinois, uh, Carbondale. And I accepted that. I rented a wooden bungalow as my um, graduate home and studio. And I came home from a party for the New York art gay art critic Gregory Badcock and found my house totally destroyed by a fire. Ah. And so you're seeing drawings that were soaked by the fireman's, um, uh, the water for the fireman's hose. Uh, that were in, organized in a portfolio, and the singes of all the drawings burned, but the the main element of the drawing was preserved, so it's by chance that they have this burnt edge, but it enhances the drawings um, and so I show them as is uh, with the burned edges.
3: I think they're incredible.
2: And I that was all, um, those were I all, those, as well. those were all drawings done in Chicago. Uh, they weren't uh, necessarily uh, grad school drawings. I lost all the paintings. I lost all my undergraduate paintings in that fire, but mm-hmm. the, but many of the
3: works on paper survived. Wow. Well, let's get on to our final questions with you. This is so brilliant, Jimmy. Um, The first question that we ask every guest is, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, for your own collection, it could be anything, anywhere, what would it be and why? Uh,
2: No painting by Albert Pinkham Ryder is safe. (laughs) I would take any Ryder painting. And, you know, um, I saw a reproduction of a painting again when I was a kid, and it's Death on a Pale Horse. It's called a mm-hmm. racetrack. And of course, Kentucky is home to the Kentucky Derby. So there's this sort of mythical mythical culture of of thoroughbred racehorses and racetracks. And this is death riding a racehorse on a horse, horse track. And I love Ryder. I love that the paintings take on a physical presence, because he kept pouring varnish and more paint on them and altering the glow of the surface. Um, You know, there are writers where the paint is so thick that periodically the conservators have to turn the painting upside down so that all this still, moist, oil paint underneath the varnish moves Mm. back into place. So I love the writers because they take on abstract forms that has some kind of life and of its own that that gives the painting makes the painting more than just a surface, but it becomes a living physical object that's that, you know, in a sense is constantly changing.
3: I'm looking hmm. now. Alf, Albert Pinkham Ryder, and this painting you're describing was created in 1900. Oh, it's at the Cleveland Art Museum, Ohio. Wow! wow. Of oh, yeah. all places. Oh, cool. Uh, so it's you know, and he was a New Yorker. Uh, new artist, new artist to us, I think. I, have you heard of him, Rob?
0: No, no, I hadn't actually. Well, and I, and it's I think a he was. I love the way you described it. It's uh, very.
2: Um, yeah, uh, and he was a big influence on you know uh, Marsden Hartley. Uh, oh wow, who who's another okay. artist, American artist that I love, and of course Marsden Hartland was a gay man. So um, if yeah. I couldn't get the writer, I would grab a Marsden Hartley.
0: I think I think Catherine Bradford loves um, that work, doesn't she? Yes, probably. I remember her. Yeah, I remember her telling us about him. Um, The other question we ask every guest is a good one for you. Uh, What is your favourite colour?
2: Oh, that's so easy. Ever since I was a little (laughs) kid, blue. (laughs) Blue is my favourite. Why Why blue?
3: Why do you think that is?
2: I think because boys' bicycles were blue. Girls' bicycles (laughs) were red. Don't know why, but the hardware store determined that.
3: (laughs) But it's very I, binary at the time. But you were like, "I was about like, to say that was the binary the era, wasn't it?" Yes. Yeah. I want to and, follow the boys' bikes. Where all the and big boys. I remember go. in the eighties.
0: Eighties, it was like blue for boys, pink for girls. Yeah, it was so yes. binary, so right. binary. Right. even then. Yeah.
3: What is the best advice yeah. you've ever received when it comes to your artwork?
2: Well, probably the most off the wall was this drawing instructor from New York, who said, "Oh, God takes care of artists." you have a guardian angel, just follow your, follow your path. You have a guardian angel. But of course, that's not necessarily true. And I think the best studio advice came from Ray Yoshida when he would ask the question, could this be, and it was always followed with what, where can you take this Where else, besides what is here now, where else will this idea go? And it wasn't so much the idea, sometimes it was just the shape, the physicality of what you were putting on the canvas. Um, So it was really Ray that I'm indebted to my sensory connection to what painting can reveal visually and intellectually.
3: So, what happens now, Jimmy, what's next for you? What are your hopes and dreams and uh, ambitions for the work and what are you working towards right now?
2: Well, David Fearman and I are working very hard. we have a I have a show opening September seventh in Yay. David's new space on Pitt Street, lower Manhattan. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm going to show only uh, two paintings, and those are the uh, flowers for Ken. Uh, the front oh, of amazing. the sunflower head and the, and the back of the sunflower head. And oh, um, they've never been shown together in New York, so it's a first for New York. And, oh. um, uh, you know, I have a, um, a sense of vulnerability that these are going to be shown. But um, I'm really happy that that David's doing this for me. Yeah, I mean,
3: David's gallery uh, launched in 2016. It has a focus on queer perspectives and overlooked artists. And I think what he's, who he's like rediscovered and made everyone else kind of discover has been incredible. And that's especially you, Jimmy. That's, uh, I think you're an an amazing artist. We think you're just incredible. And well, maybe David was that. Guardian angel, I was told about exactly. Ah, maybe David's God. <laughs>
0: you know, <laughs> you know Jimmy. <laughs> you know Jimmy. I I, I want to see a show one day of all your Pompeii um, titled paintings. Like oh, that great! You did. Thank you. Because I, I loved I loved the reference to Pompeii. I meant to ask you about it earlier, but obviously that was another civilization in a sense that ended up you know covered in um,
2: uh, destroyed you know, by I'll fire think. and covered in ash. Yeah, um, exactly. Ash. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I hope, thank you so much. hopefully that's what will be happening in the studio is a new, um, a black Pompeii series. I've done one. So, oh, really? So oh, cool. hopefully I'm going to follow it up with a series, um, that I may show in Europe in 23. We'll see.
3: You post a lot on Instagram, uh, which is always lovely to see. What is your Instagram, uh, handle? Jimbo Alley. Great. And that's where your studio <laughs> Jimbo is. Jimbo Alley. Yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So everybody follow Jimbo, Alley, And um, there's a few publications out there which are phenomenal. Uh, there's one that has a blue cover, which I absolutely love, that was published a couple of years ago, right?
2: Yes, published by um, Corbett versus Dempsey, my yeah. my great uh, gallery uh, that operates internationally, but they operate out of Chicago. Um, and they were the first to show all of this um, gay body of work from the 70s and the book is called um, uh, New York Underground and it's drawings from it's the gay drawings from the meatpacking district it's the gay drawings from Club 82 it's also uh, drawings of dreams Uh, So it's quite, it's a whole chronology of um, the late 70s up until
3: AIDS. It's it's an incredible book. So thank you, Corbett versus Dempsey, for today's interview. Thank you, David Fearman Gallery. And thank you, Jimmy Wright. This has been wonderful. Thank you. You can
0: go to at Fearman Gallery on Instagram as well. Um, Thank you, Jimmy. We love you. And for everyone listening, we'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, Jimmy. Bye. Bye.